Because the second you allow your mind to go down that path of like, oh, it wasn't in my control, you know, which means you're, you're really, you're not dealing with the problems at hand and the real issue. You're kind of like bypassing the problems uh, when you do that. And then you can't grow from the experience. So it's like, what's the point of losing if you're not going to grow from it and get the most of it? Welcome to season three of the Offball Podcast. My name is Martin Reeder. I'm an Olympian. I'm a performance coach. I'm someone who lives life as fully as possible. I recently moved to a new country from Canada to Australia and I'm starting out here. But way more importantly than those details, I'm simply someone who loves connecting with human beings. I love mentoring. I love coaching. I love working with youth. And the Offball Athlete is the platform that I've really started as a personal project that is now turning into what I want to do for the rest of my life, which is really to talk about mind and body and life outside of sport so preparation can meet opportunity. This is not about spending more time in the peak expression, spending more time training. There's a lot less space there than people think. Yes, we have to train. Yes, we have to work hard. Those are absolutely non-negotiables. But how we construct our lives, how we approach the physical development, how we dive into the mind and build frameworks to handle pressure, to truly understand who we are outside of sport so that when we do go onto the playing field, we're a much more whole and complete individual. Those are the important things that I really don't think we're talking about right now. So this is a platform where we can share those much like we would elders talking around a fire. These are important conversations to me, and I invite you to participate as we evolve the conversation of what it means to be an athlete. So to launch this season, I've intentionally invited Dr. Josh Binstock onto the show. Now, if you're familiar with who I am and and my journey, you'll know that Josh and I qualified for and competed in the 2012 Olympics together. That was an unbelievable season and an incredible ride, one that we'll get into a little bit in this podcast, but I really wanted to talk with Josh about his mental framework. He is one of the most fierce competitors I've ever played with or against. And I wanted to dive into that. I wanted to expose that for you guys. I wanted to take out some nuggets that I think only live inside his brain. He's evolved the sport. And I just really admire Josh. I respect him. I love him. He's an incredible man that's really impacted my life. And you are deserving of the conversation that we have. So this is an hour and 40 minutes where we tell some great stories together and reminisce just a little bit, but I try to move this into tangible ideas and concepts and and paint a picture that you can apply in your life, whether you're an athlete, whether you're a coach, whether you're just someone who's interested in being better, this 100% applies to you. So without further ado, I'm honored to introduce you to my man, Josh Binstock. Bina, welcome. Round two, actually. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, my my bad. Uh, this little bit of public disclosure here. I forgot to <laughs> press record on our first one. So this is go to, and uh, I'm looking forward to it, Vince. Yeah, as am I. It'll be goody. Well, let's let's 
get right into the the childhood. What what does Josh's childhood look like from a family and sporting perspective? Just so we can get a little bit of a background, and and so we can set a really nice storyline for uh, your career and what's happening now. Uh, well, uh, yeah, sporting was definitely part of uh, coming up. It was good. I mean, my parents never <clears throat> forced me on anything. You know, I grew up playing hockey, baseball, pretty hardcore, and uh, a lot of. Uh, my buddies that I played with went to the NHL, but in the summers they weren't doing anything else other than playing hockey. So it's that fine line where do you push? But a lot of my buddies who could go to the NHL also burnt out. And that's a big, uh, big issue with the kids these days and the parents. So, um, but they were, they were supportive no matter what I did, which is funny with volleyball. Cause when I started playing that, they had no idea about this sport. So my dad's like, I don't get it. Just don't let the ball hit the ground. I don't know what the big deal is here. What's your problem? <laughs> but, um, so I'm like, I don't doubt I'm trying, trust me. But, uh, no, it was, uh, it was pretty supportive overall. Um, my uh, younger brother, uh, Aaron, he was, uh, super supportive as well. Uh, he played, uh, same things growing up and uh, my uh, half brother and half sister. So we were all pretty night tight knit group challenging each other always and, um, and supporting each other at the same time. Well, let's, let's touch upon them. Cause when, whenever you have siblings that always creates this really interesting dynamic, can you just share a little bit about what each of your siblings kind of meant to you and, and how they helped shape you into the athlete that you were in person you are? Yeah, I mean, my my uh, half brother, half sisters, my dad's first marriage, but um, you know, they were like my full brother and sister. They, you know, they lived with us. The way we interacted, it was pretty much the. Um, so my older brother, he was just, I think, you know, he's like ten years uh, or eight years. He seemed like fifty years older back then, but um, he was always bigger than us. So he would uh, make my brother and I put on, you know, wrestling suits and bring his friends over and just throw us around the ring. <laughs> so we had to learn how to take beatings back then. Uh, so that was, uh, I hated that then, but of course, uh, was blessing in disguise now for my, my enforcer role in hockey. Uh, my sister, she was big tennis, so she was super supportive. Um, and was always kind of, you know, getting in there and, and helping me out, but also challenging me. So she didn't really uh, let me get away with much, but uh, I appreciate it for that. And then, um, yeah, Aaron, my, uh, my younger, younger brother, he is such a, for, you know, it's amazing. I, I, uh, I see some of my, my friends and their siblings, not that they're consciously admitted, but subconsciously, some of their siblings resent my buddies, <clears throat> you know, in a, in a <clears throat> subconscious way because of all the attention and the accolades and success that they've had. And, you know, they're, they're not the favorite child or are they getting all this attention from the media or other friends and family. And I can honestly say my brother has been the most genuinely authentic supporter um, of them all. You know, he comes to London leading the charge with the guys, you know, the hockey helmet there. And, you know, they were supposed to be interviewed by CBC, all of our buddies. And of course they don't show up because it was, a little, I think it was 11 a.m. in the morning and that was after a night game. So they kept the party going, but who shows up hungover and all my brother. And, uh, <laughs> He, um, he just keeping me, um, you know, for a guy who never really played volleyball at a high level, he's so cognitive, so intelligent, and he knows me, you know, better than anybody. So he was able to keep me optimistic in times where I was struggling and questioning myself. So, um, yeah, I love him for that and uh, special for sure. Was, was he someone that was able to challenge you and keep you accountable throughout your, your life or even later on in your career? Is he that guy for you? <clears throat> totally. It's, it's ironic. He's, even though he's my younger brother, it, it's kind of like the, our relationship. He's like the older brother. 
Um, so he'll support me when it's there, but he won't, he's not the blowing smoke up my butt type of guy. If I'm not doing something that's, uh, that he, you know, thinks is, is for the betterment of myself, he's got my best interest and, uh, he won't let me off the hook. You know, he, he'll see what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to set myself off the hook and he'll keep me accountable for sure. So, um, you know, it's the best of both there. Awesome. Well, we, we all need those, man. And you're actually that guy for me for, for quite some time. So <laughs> I, I appreciate you for that. Of course. And diving into a little bit more of a sports side of things, and you talk about burnout, oddly enough, and, and how you have a really unique story within sport and how you've transitioned through a few different sports and whatnot, coming to volleyball. And I just love to go through that with you because there was a time where you played baseball, hockey, there were some decisions that you made and then you found volleyball. So can you take me through your, your journey discovering, let's just say volleyball <clears throat> and the sports you played before that and, and how they served you in, in your game? Yeah, like I said, I played hockey and baseball, but it was funny. I'm always defensive minded with hockey. I was a defense with baseball. I was a back catcher. It was weird. I was never really the guy who was trying to get all the goals. I was kind of trying to save them the most. Um, and even, you know, volleyball in the middle, like, you know, middles never really get the most, you know, the kills. They never really get the accolades. They're kind of like, you know, the best you can do is your job. It's not like you can do anything better than that. And then if not, you just get shit on for missing the blocks always or whatever. So, um, but uh, I guess I just, you know, I didn't get drafted for uh, hockey and I was playing so much hockey to not get drafted. So I just wanted to try a new sport and tried everything. And volleyball was something I just um, connected with. I had a similar swing, baseball swing to volleyball. So I had success there and it was just a new challenge. It was so hard because I was so far behind everybody. So um, my school team uh, put in a club t into uh, the club system. We got, just got smoked, but, um, I guess I got uh, scouted and played on the regional team and then went to Madawaska camp. And then I just loved the whole volleyball community. Never mind the actual sport. Uh, then I fell in love with that and I made the provincial team. And it was funny. I was always like the last person to make the team, like the coach. I feel like this guy's not that good. He's not, he's pretty raw, he's not, but he's got good heart. You know, he's good at a team guy. So like junior national team, same, same thing. I was only like the one uh, person from Ontario who made it. And back then there was uh, grade 12 for um, all the other provinces, except for Ontario who had grade 13. So I was the only one who played on junior national team without having a year of university ball under my belt. And I could tell these guys just took me, not because I was even close to as good as the other ones, but, uh, but I just kept working and I, I felt so far behind that I wanted to find ways to kind of succeed in despite, uh, which forced me to put a lot of work off the court as well as on. So from then I just kind of ran with it and the beach was a game that I started uh, U of T, uh, University of Toronto. It was a big uh, culture there. Oristenko was, was, um, you know, the head of the, the kind of national program. I don't know if it was official, but he had a training group and it was something that I could play in the off season as well as uh, not get burnt out. And I just love that it's, uh, you know, it made you be an overall athlete. It's not like indoor where you can just be this big goon who hits middle or just a setter or libero or whatnot. You really have to do everything. And uh, you couldn't hide, you know, if you weren't doing well in indoor, you could get subbed off or the setter could set somebody else, but beach, there's no way to go. So it just, I just loved how uh, exposed it made you. I mean, I didn't at the time, but uh, it was just, <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, quite ego checking, but uh, I realized it was for the best in the end. So that was, that was kind of when I started coming on the scene and I saw you playing with Adrian Weglow and I believe you won <clears throat> national championships and played in, <clears throat> I think there was a Canadian game. So as you entered the the beach scene and you started to to 
get some pretty good results. You played with Brian Heaves back in the day. Um, talk me through your kind of parallel worlds of beach and indoors and a little bit of your progression to the tail end of your indoor season because I know you had some good looks with, the, I think, the junior national team. Like, How did you juggle one and the other? And uh, I guess talk about your, your kind of peak indoor experience and how that transitioned you to beach. Yeah, I had uh, junior national team experience before my first university, which was nice. Usually everybody had it after. So I had some confidence going into my first year of uh, university because usually the rookies don't start. Um, and that's where I learned, I guess, how to uh, stay optimistic and poised when you're losing. I, these guys, they they won Ontario championships. Uh, I, I was with a lot of fifth years, so actually they left and we didn't win in our second year, but then in our third and fourth, we did again. But stepping on the court with these all these fifth year guys, I mean, you know, I'll never forget uh, just being down and, and panicking. We're like, oh my God, we're losing. And just seeing these guys just like chill, composed, confident. I was like, how are you, you guys are just making all kinds of errors. We can't stop these guys. And you, this is fine to you. And they're like, easy to rookie, relax, you know, and then uh, it did. It just, it was just such, such poise where it's easy to stay confident when you're up, of course. But uh, I really learned how to uh, just be resilient and, um, and stay poised and optimistic when things aren't going well. Love it when you can see the, the elders in action and you learn just by absorbing and, and being on the court with them. And, during that time, like, what do you think your strength was as, as a volleyball athlete? Cause I know that there was an injury that, that forced you to change, but when you were fresh, you know, what, what did your volleyball game look like at the time? I had to uh, be a different uh, look. I wasn't uh, a technically sound player because I started late. So I had to just make my looks different. I had to learn the tendencies. I had to uh, pretty much just grind. And I realized I wasn't going to make things look pretty. So it was more so instead of me getting the kill, uh, just keep, you know, digging balls. And I wanted to be the the, the middle who wasn't going to get taken out in the backcourt um, and, and just find ways to really um, look at the tape. I, I just got obsessed with film and I was like, okay, if I'm not going to be as fast, as these guys or as big as these guys, how can I, um, what's my competitive advantage? And, uh, I felt my cognitive uh, ability to adjust in game was something that a lot of people just didn't do. So they just stick to this game plan, like, uh, you know, being so stubborn and, uh, I, I was able to kind of adjust uh, in game. So that was kind of my, uh, my, I guess, success, uh, perspective really. Yeah. And then from an injury perspective, I believe you wound up having some type of shoulder injury. I'll let you tell that story, but you know, how did that change how you played and how did that change your outlook? And really this is going to set up your beach volleyball career because you really need to, to become crafty and to be, be better at the mental game, which I'm a firm believer that you're one of the best competitors to have ever represented Canada beach volleyball. So we're kind of setting <laughs> up the mind here, but you know, there was an injury that occurred to you that really forced you, whether you liked it or not to, to shift your game. Talk about that. Yeah, I had a slap tear, which is a labral tear for your shoulder. It's the cartilage that holds the shoulder joint in place. So it's not really like a rotator cuff or a muscle where you can rehab it that you need. Uh, if it's bad enough, you need surgery. So he was going to scope the surgeon. I just didn't take a break. That was my problem. I didn't work out properly. I just played, played, played. So 
it's kind of why I became a chiropractor. That started my, my, um, you know, urge to, uh, to learn everything about the body and then actually try to teach the kids now, you know, things, uh, how to avoid that, um, going what I went through. But, um, yeah, I couldn't, uh, the surgeon's like, well, you for sure can't play at a high level right now. And even after surgery, to be honest, I can't tell you that you might play again at a high level because of how, uh, damaged it is. He had to open it up instead of scope. So when I did come back, <clears throat> yeah, it was a year, it's a year and actually a half. It was between after uh, my last year of university and, um, and chiropractic college. So I actually de- deferred my year of chiropractic college just to rehab properly because it was a full-time thing because it was, it was so damaged. Um, but I, I didn't really come back the same, to be honest. Uh, the labrum is something that you can't really strengthen. You can just strengthen around. So that's why I kind of pursued beach over indoor because now I couldn't rely on power, which is funny because yeah, a lot of guys couldn't even believe I had power back in the day because it was so long ago. <laughs> but, um, but I had to, uh, I couldn't overpower guys. So I really had to, uh, figure out ways to be successful. So I just forced myself to, to do division drills and change the timing of my hits and, uh, change the, you know, the hit contact point and the way, um, just diff- make, a make the looks different because I had to be, I, I think in my last kind of university game, even though I had come back for that, I, I don't think I got one kill to hit the floor right up right away. It was just kind of like slivel tool, chop slime. It was all, it was all bad, but, uh, but it ended up kept working. So it really was a blessing in disguise because now on the beach I could hit hard enough. I just couldn't hit hard all the time and indoors. So, uh, at the time it was definitely something that was, uh, it was tough to go through. It was, you know, I went through depression or if you want to call it, I remember watching, you know, uh, Mark and John on the Olympics and I was like, wanted to get there one day and I couldn't even move my arm an inch laterally, never mind bring it up to actually go to swing. And I was just like, how am I ever going to do this? So that was, that was a dark time for sure. But uh, looking back, it, it made me a better, better human and player for that. When, when did you set your sights on the Olympics? I've actually never asked you that question. When did you have that thought or when did you think that was either possible or, or identified as something that you wanted to do? I think after seeing Mark and John um, go to get that bronze and watching them do that, and we're like, whoa, you know, Canada can do that. And at that time I was carded because back then you win your junior or your age group national championships and you get a card, which is great. So I just got all my university years paid for <laughs> winning national championships. But uh, yeah, seeing them there and then uh, I kept winning national championships for my age group. I figured, okay, well, if I'm you know the best in Canada, maybe I could, maybe I could do this worldwide, which didn't realize how how far back then Canada was in the world but uh, I think we've we've made some headway since then most certainly well keeping it in the timeline of of your life and and how you've gotten to where you are today you alluded to Cairo school and I just want to give a point of reference for people that you you went through school and prioritized that journey before you did beach volleyball you know I left school I left UBC to go play in a, in a beast training camp with Jesse and then start playing for the national team. And I, I haven't looked back since, but you were committed to your school and your journey. So can you just put into perspective what was behind that decision and what that looked like where you were pushing the career that you wanted to have in, in beach, knowing that you also wanted to become a chiropractor? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was tough for sure. <laughs> Not having much of a life those years, the the curriculum was pretty intense, and obviously to be successful on the international stage for volleyball uh, is difficult as well. So you know, to be honest, I wasn't really doing that great in both. Uh, I was doing okay. So, uh, but I just knew, you know, we're we're not really playing like hockey or baseball or making millions. And, um, I realized, you know, my career, I wanted to do something that one, I was passionate about and two, I was knowledgeable about and all my injuries. I figured, well, let's, I already got the practical experience. Let's put some theory behind that. And I was thinking about, uh, pursuing beach and then going back. But then, you know, I was talking to some people they are like, once you're out of that school vibe and, and routine, you're not going to want to go back in. So just keep that. Cause once you're studying for exams, it's a whole, you know, as, as your uh, better half knows pretty well right now, that, that grind. So uh, once you leave that grind, you're, you're never going to want to go back. So just stay in it, um, get it done and then go from there. So that was when I was able to kind of commit fully after, uh, after I got my uh, chiropractic degree. Well, it, it was tough. Cause I remember you'd always show up for a little bit in the summertime. You'd, you'd show up for mm-hmm. national championships. <clears throat> you'd wax a bunch of people that didn't know any better. You'd, you'd come out of nowhere <laughs> and, do, and do really well, but you know, you were, you were missing the repetitions of playing full time. And so when you graduated from Cairo school and, and you stepped on the game, can you bring light to that choice of, you know, approaching beach volleyball as a full-time athlete and what that looked like for you? Yeah. I always wanted to have, um, you know, no regrets of, cause like I said, I was, I was doing okay at both, but because they were so demanding, I wasn't really excelling at both. So I just wanted to, commit to beach full time for once and, and see, you know, how far I could have gone because if I didn't, I don't think, um, you know, I would have forgiven myself because I would have had regrets about, Oh, maybe I could have done this if I committed or maybe I could have done that. So, um, and you know, Olympics was that goal. And if I didn't make the Olympics, I I would have still felt okay because I know I did everything I could. And obviously us making that was, uh, was icing on the cake there. But there was there was a really interesting time there, and shout out to Matt, Matty Shashevsky because you and you mm. and Matty ran a pretty pretty solid train in Canada for a bit. You guys won a few national championships, but at the same time, you weren't selected for the national team, and so you you were really pushing the boundaries. But you know maybe you weren't necessarily selected or invited to the national team, but you're still beating some great teams. You know what was going on inside your head there because that was a really tough time. I remember it. You, you were beating me and I was a carded athlete. I was like, shit, what's going on here? <laughs> um, you know, you, you were able to transition full-time in the national team, but there were, there were some tough times there. Can you allude to a, a little bit about that journey with Maddie and what that partnership was and what you guys had to, to battle against? Yeah, definitely. I, uh, cause I think, you know, the irony about we got cut was the new coach coming in, Leonard crap, who in full circle, I end up, you know, hiring out of, you know, paying out of my, my own pocket to bring him on as my personal coach. So I went from hating the guy to loving him because he cut Maddie and I, cause we were the old guys and he just came from Germany working with the young, the younger. So I think he wanted to have more control, but um, yeah, with Maddie, I mean, I, I feel bad to this day because he was so far ahead of me at that time. So in the national scene, we were there and we'd always lose like 15, 13, 16, 14. And at that time, it was always me getting served. And in my mind, I wasn't willing to be open and realize 
that, that it wasn't just, Oh, a tough serve at the end there or, Oh, a tough play. Like it, it was consistent and it was me not willing to be vulnerable and take risks and, and just go for it in those situations. And he, and he was such a rock star stud. Every time I blow a game, he'd be like, you know, I, we're in like, you know, the most expensive country. And he's like, Oh good. You know, let's get ready for the next one. He was so supportive. And I was like, damn, I wish I played with him later in my career when I went through all that. Cause you know, I had to go through that to, to become the player I became, but yeah, he was such a, a rock star and a fun to play with. But even having said that, like you guys were mentally so strong and you were able to come at each other and, and I don't mean come at each other in a personal way, but you guys were able to get things out of each other that I don't think a lot of athletes could hold and withstand and stay positive. Can you talk about your dynamic as a team? Because you guys were able to really go into the depths and, and, you know, from what I could tell, not take things personally. And you guys mm. played with this aggression and this level of intensity that you know, I, I hadn't really seen, to be totally honest with you. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, uh, you wouldn't, I don't think any coach or sports psych would, uh, would tell teams to uh, behave like this. But uh, we, yeah, we, we were just like keeping each other accountable, but we'd be in an aggressive way. So we'd call each other around the court. I think it was because, you know, we were such good friends before. We had battles in high school, so we knew each other's style and we, we always had mutual respect. Um, but yeah, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a, a positive, like way to go, good play. It's like, if you miss an assignment, you're like, you know, block the angle. You're supposed to block the angle. And the next play, he looks black and blocks the angle. Shit slams and he looks back. He's like, is that what you want? Ah! You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's it. You know, so we're like snapping on each other on the court, but it never, uh, it never took us down. It actually fired us up the other way. And then after it was over, yeah, win or lose. It was like, uh, you know, we didn't even realize we did that. Guys were like, well, you guys are okay? What are you nuts? And we're like, what are you talking about? So it was, uh, which kind of was tough because then, you know, when I was playing like with Sam or you, sometimes or my rich after that it was like I kind of kept that because that's what got me going and my you know, our coaches were like no 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 you, you can't you can't be like that with your partner that's not you know it's not supportive but it was just so ingrained with Maddie it was so natural well that's a perfect transition because you know for me I, I pay homage to Jesse Lelliot, Aaron Cadu, Ray Sewell, uh, ben Saxton, Kame Schalk, all the partners that I played with leading up to playing with you, they each one of those prepared me to play with you because you were a demanding partner in the best way possible. Um, so you had just come off of transitioning. I think it was with Matt to Rich, played a season with Rich, and, and then you and I wound up hooking up together. Um, you want to talk about you know what that season was, and then, and then we can transition to uh, our, our 2012 push. Yeah, going with uh, and I, I had Redmond. I had some time with Redmond too. We actually started off together. Oh yeah, that's um, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was the uh, sneakiest Canadian beach volleyball athlete out there. Got to <laughs> got to give him a ton of credit. He he sent me an email when I was fifteen, and, he, and I believe he was sixteen to go to the first World Championships down in Australia back in the day. So we got to give some love to to see Redmond because he's been around since the the very beginning and has done an amazing job. Oh yeah. He's an OG. He, he was never mind getting cut. He was that poor guy always got cut from the national team for no reason other than physical, which is just ridiculous because it has nothing to do with beach volleyball. And then he goes out and gets like a ninth at worlds. I think it was rich. It was amazing. And uh, yeah, he was a vet for sure. He knows all the ins and outs. I uh, always had that uh, huge chalet and stod locked down every year. That was great. 
but, um, but yeah, that year with Rich before you and I had the run, um, it was interesting. I mean, I got served every ball again, so that was good to uh, get a feel for that. But uh, he, uh, you see, didn't have it in him at the end. He kind of, you know, opened up and uh, just said, you know, his heart's not in it and lost the passion a little bit. So he actually shut her down early before the season was done. And uh, and then I ended up bringing out Maverick Hatch for the last couple of tournaments of the season out there. And that was, that was hilarious too because, you know, that guy – we're good friends, even though we're snapping on the court together, even when we win a tournament. I remember we were in Switzerland or Austria. I remember we win a tournament and we're still losing our mind on each other. And the interview guy is waiting to interview us uh, for at the end of the match. And he can't even get a word in because we're just losing our mind against each other. So that was an interesting <laughs> dynamic. Love the guy, but uh, the choreo was tough at that time. Well, that storyline allowed <laughs> us to, to partner together. And I always think back to <clears throat> You know, I think it was like New Year's 2010 when we were driving in my car from Kelowna after watching right. Deadmos and Scotty Emsley hosted a big event yes. there. And, and you and yeah. I, I don't even think we thought about playing with each other. We were both mm-hmm. kind of blockers at the time. And it, if I remember correctly, we didn't even think about a future together. So fast forward to two years later when we were just keeping in touch and, and then that opportunity came together. Um, so, hey, first and foremost, I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to play with you, man. That, that timing was, was amazing. And, you know, to build the story, like we, we had a lot to prove. We, we had a lot to do that year coming together because there was, let's say, six other teams that were in the hunt for the Olympics. And it was the first time that our country could get a berth through the continental circuit. So it was kind of anybody's game. So we brought a level of intensity. I'd like to say that I'd never experienced within our national team culture at that point. Um, I just would love to hear you break down the start of that season and and talk about what you went through. It was kind of the first time we really professionalized, um, or at least for me. um, Big big time. And that's kind of what I'm getting at really is that 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 was the first time I ever put my big boy pants on. It was, I was playing on tour. Maybe I didn't have specific goals up until then, but we had one one season to qualify for an Olympic game and, and, everything was on the pressure was on so continue sort of to steal that from mm-hmm. yeah yeah no for sure so um to to see what we accomplished uh because of you know reaping the fruits of our labor we really put in so much work and that you know that day in the life video you made i mean that just says it all right there what we put in every day and it was amazing how many people have messaged me being like i love that video you got to make another one i was like i didn't even know you saw that you know but it was uh <laughs> They love seeing the work we put in, you know, eight till eight every day. Um, and uh, I love that grind because, uh, you know, it was with you and we had each other to, to push each other and, um, you know, keep each other accountable on and off the court. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big time. And I think, you know, that, that was the first time really having a, a coach off of the court as well. So Gus Tipsialis, a big tip of the hat to him. I call him our mm-hmm. marriage counselor. So we, we essentially had someone who was, helping us through our relationship. And I think a big part of our, our partnership was our ability to communicate with each other. And I think our past partners had helped us find that rhythm. Um, I certainly needed to step up into a level where I could handle your intensity. Um, you know, we, we were able to communicate together. What, what do you think would be a, one of the, I guess, secret sauces of our, our partnership that allowed us to qualify for the games? 
Uh, I, I would say just our ability to be uh, trust tree. <laughs> we not in this nest, are we not there? <laughs> you know, we could we could say things that I would 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 feel maybe before if I didn't have um, you know someone kind of you know, helping us through that. Baby, do they think I'm attacking them? Do they do? I, am I being too vulnerable? Maybe if I show weakness, that it shows that I'm you know my ego. And uh, we could kind of just talk about things that happened on the court after the fact. And then when we were in that same situation again, we already had that open and honest discussion. So then that, uh, that honesty came through and then that helped us move on when, okay, was the play my fault? Yeah. was that play your fault? Or was that just a good shot? Oh, okay. And it wasn't like um, a delay. It was just like, we were on the same page without even talking really. Yeah. It was the first time that I'd really needed to, come to terms with the the accountability and then and then really come around that with gratitude. And I think we were able to mix those up. I shared that in a few talks, but there was there was definitely this ability to take it seriously, to take each other seriously, but not take it personally that uh, I, I remember fondly. And that allowed us to get to a position where we were number one team and, and we wanted to go to Mexico for the uh, continental qualifier, which is pretty exciting. Um, and that was the first of its kind. So I, I just want to bring that up because that event was the highest pressure that I had ever been under at that point in time. You know, any fond memories of that Olympic qualifier down in Mexico? Oh my, where do we begin? I know we gotta, we gotta keep a tight ship here, but geez, uh, I just remember stepping off that plane and being smacked with the most humid hot i don't do well i know you relish in that heat but i am not meant for this beach volleyball in general so the fact that um, you know we we kept it together and won that epic battle was um was an incredible experience because yeah so much is on the line and it was just like that that match we needed to win because they beat our other canadian uh counterparts so uh we needed to win that to get the birth for the country and there, there's a video that exists with a, a few of those matches all put <clears> together. And I, I'll put any any video that we reference, I'll put it in the show notes. But I highly, rec- highly recommend people checking that out because we, I think we played Nicaragua and then we wound up playing Cuba. And Cuba was always just a, such a fun battle. I loved playing Cuba and just their machismo and their athleticism, hands down, incredible, incredible <laughs> athletes. But, you know, playing with you, we were able to meet that with a, a level of the mental game that uh, I think we, we smoked them and that was a big serving, big hitting, big blocking match. We, we stepped up in a, in a big way in that one. Well, I'll never forget you because yeah, you, cause you know, usually they get away with intimidating other people and that's their game, but you, you know, they did not expect you to kind of match their, their alpha-ness, so to speak. So they, you know, all of a sudden it's like the chink in the armor and you, you shut down their big hits. And then I remember you block a ball off your face and you get the block, your nose blows up, blood everywhere. And you're, and the crowd's going crazy. And you're like, are you not entertained? I don't know if you said that, but it was kind of like, you were like, ah, you know, and it was amazing. And then the coaches kind of were cheating actually. So that was even like the more of an F you would be like, you can take your cheating and shove it because I'll block it with my hands and my face. What else you got? You know, it was the best. And then they just folded. They were like this guy. It was like out of like a Rocky four when he realizes, you know, you can't hurt uh, Sylvester Stallone. He's like, this guy's not human. And then he just folds up. It was the best. That was a fun one. That was a fun one. And then that 
provided us an opportunity to get to the to the finals in, in Mexico. You already alluded to, you know, we had a, we had a must win game and that game was for Canada's birth. So it wasn't for us as a team. It was for Canada. Um, what a game that was. And I was being served in that game. And I, I remember, I think we won the first set, lost the second set. And that, that was on me. And, and we had a battle of a third set. And that one was just a total game of attrition. Um, I'll give you a little bit of space to talk about that one. Um, but what what a game that was. Yeah, going into the third and we're just such a hostile crowd. It was insane. I mean, I don't really speak Spanish, but I'm pretty sure that uh, the words they're yelling when we serve in unison was just, I was like, come on, there's kids here, guys. But they, <laughs> they didn't care at all. Um, and yeah, the, the stakes, it's like, do you take the risk of the stakes? You, and you have, I've never been in a situation where you actually have to pick and choose when you expend energy, normally you're like, okay, I got this. I'm just going to go every ball, every play. But if you went too hard too early, you wouldn't have anything for the end. And it was like something that I hadn't had an experience like that before. But, um, but yeah, that, uh, I think it went down to the wire there. We had to make some adjustments uh, and then, uh, you, you, uh, serve that rocket at the end to, uh, to the guy that we weren't serving. Actually. I don't know if you want to speak on that, but, uh, Absolutely. Well, I'll just give you some credit and, and having played defense for, I think we split until it was necessary for me to run up and you play full-time defense. Cause I certainly wasn't a defensive specialist uh, better than a 50, 50 split anyways. <laughs> and, you know, when I wasn't getting blocks, it was always a great card for us to have for you to go up to the net and block. And, I just, for whatever reason, wasn't getting the touches that I wanted. And, and you got two blocks in the middle of that third set um, that were absolutely pivotal, that put us in a position where we might have been evens at 13-all or, or to get us up 14-13. But we were down for the, for the third set. So I'll give you full credit for, for getting mm -hmm. us there. And then to talk about the serve, you know, I, I share this a lot as well as, I think you and I paid attention to the things that were inside of our control the most out of any other partnership I've ever been a part of. And the serving element was something that I think we focused on and, and we had a few serves that we actually planned. And one of them I, I call the Christopher Columbus because it was built specifically <laughs> for, for that game and that team. And right. so we, we were serving Aldo on the right side. So I was, I was serving from, from five, five to one. And then out of nowhere, I just remember having this split moment of it's time. And hmm. I didn't even think about it. I thought about it, but I didn't think about it. it. Just came so naturally. And I, the ball was in the air off the toss before I could even think about it. And right. I wasn't having a great serving game. And then I just absolutely demolished that one. And it was exactly what, what you just said of like picking and choosing and, and executing. And uh, you want to putting a, an over bump away and had the best celebration of, of your career, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one and only time I actually took my shirt off. I don't understand that. I, I see the picture after. And I was like, wait a second. Why is my shirt off and yours is on? And I have you in the air. I'm holding you. Uh, you outweigh me. You're like three times as strong as me. And I'm picking you up. Uh, I don't even remember anything. And uh, what a picture because the crowd is just stunned. And it was, that was epic. Well, let's let's move past that and and transition just so to a little bit of dialogue because I think there's some really good juice on on the Canada versus Canada final qualifier, and just to set that one up, you know, Christian and Ben, guys that we played against, played with our entire lives, and all of a sudden we're pitted up against them, and we have one week to prepare 
for a single match, which winner takes all. On home court, I believe there's probably something like 2,500, 3,000 people watching that, that match. You know, we really prepared for that. Do you want to dive into your approach to that game? Yeah, I mean, I've never been, I've never had the chance or the opportunity to prepare for a match for so long. So the fact that we had, and that was already my kind of, my jam, my baby, watching video, preparing. So I was like, what? I don't have to, I don't have to just do it the night before I have a week. So it was, uh, so we set up, uh, you know, I think everything is specific and as close to the real match as possible. The same day uh, of training every day, what the time of the game would be, uh, the same area on the beach that the, the game would be. We tried to get our training partners to mimic the uh, our opponents as close as possible. Shout out to Mark Gatta, who I saw at the beach the other day. Nice, Mark. Beauty. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was a great. Yeah. We actually got brought up too, and I was like, he's like, hey, I, I'm not trying. I'm just, I'm just not playing favorites here. Just trying to play volleyball for you guys. That's all I want to do. You know, we're like, we still owe you a beer. Yeah, anytime you let me know, on me for the rest of your life. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was uh, that was fun to be able to prepare. And I, I actually never, even though so nervous, <laughs> couldn't eat that day. I remember your mom had like, you know, sandwiches, and we're like, oh, I would love. They look delicious, but I'm, I get out on a puke. So, um, <laughs> but, uh, but at the same time, I actually felt insanely prepared where I kind of felt like, you know, we knew what they were going to do. And at no point was the, was the match in question actually. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll share on my side and, and our preparation for that game, we took so seriously cause we had the time. And so I, right. I, I share this at any point in time now for any team or, or human who's interested in preparing for a moment you know, we we reverse engineered that week from the the starting whistle of that game, and we were able to just like you said, train in the exact same spot in the sand as much as possible, the exact same time of day that match was going to be played. We essentially simulated every single day leading up to that as if it was that day, and then <clears throat> that day, I remember sitting there, and I think we told my mom we we want to have banana peanut butter sandwiches. I think that's what we had, yeah, but we, were, was, yeah. we weren't hungry. And the peanut butter was like, nah, nah. Yeah, yeah, it was not going down. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Um, but uh, I also feel the same way in, in that we had taken care of absolutely everything that we could have. And, you know, for me, for you, the, our team, the writing was on the wall. Like we, we'd won that game before it even started, which mm-hmm. is pretty, pretty crazy to be part of. Yeah, no, agreed. Never forget that. Plus having like our, my friends, my like besties, like you know, my buddies I grew up with, my family there, it was like losing, you know, I mean, obviously it's a possibility, but it really wasn't an option in that environment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, let's, let's do one memory from 2012. We could do another podcast on, on the Olympics itself because I want to move forward as, mm-hmm. as much as possible to get into your partnership with <clears throat> Sam and then, and then just you as an athlete, you know, the construct of your mind and how you build it because you are such a great competitor. So, you know, what did, what did playing in the 2012 Olympics mean to you? Well, the fact, I mean, uh, the moment of us walking into the stadium with our fellow athletes, uh, that was something I'll never forget because I've been watching it for, I don't know, since I was a kid. So the fact that we were able to be in that position where I saw it was something I'll never forget. But another moment that our first match, you know, the the most amount of people we played in before that was maybe a couple thousand. And we're, you know, about to walk out into a stadium against the home country 
with 15,000 people. And it was like, it, it just seemed like, it, you know, you get lost in the sea of people and you're trying to stay focused and uh, your friends and family are there and you're playing the host country and the whole world's watching everybody in your country. So you hope you just don't, you know, embarrass yourself out there. And, and it was like the, the, uh, the moment when you're just waiting, the same thing. And then once you got going, it was fine. But I, I felt like I was going to puke right before that. Cause it was like insane. But that feeling kind of like, uh, walking into the stadium with, uh, with what's it called? Uh, oh, uh, the movies. Oh, is the gladiator? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. I can not forget that. You know, that moment you're just looking around and you're like, okay, uh, release. And uh, it was funny though, because, you know, we knew our competitors there and they seemed just as nervous. So you're trying to play it off. Like, you know, who's not going to lose their, lose their stuff first. But yeah, I'll never forget that, that moment as well. I always talk about it as he who shits their pants the least wins. Yeah. Everyone's <laughs> shitting their pants just a little bit. Um, right, and, right. and maybe, and maybe I'll, I'll chime in. Let's, let's add another memory. Cause it was pretty special. Um, your, your bro and some of your closest friends uh, had, had a bit of a story. You know, I don't know if it was a surprise or if they, they all wound up rallying, but you know, we, we had an unbelievable sport or support from our families, but more specifically your bro and, and that motley crew of, of hockey fans came together. Um, oh, man. That, that was unbelievable. And, and those guys really added, added so much energy to us. You want to give them a little shout out to, to what they accomplished? <laughs> that actually came up the other day. It's funny enough because it's so long ago. None of them had kids back then. They all do now. Yeah, they, uh, you know, started the started the uh, the, the idea of bringing there. And then my mom, my mom buddy gets engaged there and the other guy didn't think he could come and his wife surprised him. And then, you know, they just had a trip of a lifetime. I barely even saw him until the end, actually, after we, we ended up losing, but um, yeah, to have them, you know, the guys from Richmond Hill that I grew up with um, there. Yeah. It was such like an extra, extra push because, you know, what are the, it means so much to have them come across the world and support us and never mind. Then they're like local heroes or celebrities because then, you know, they're walking around with like the Royal family's mask and they're getting, people are asking pictures for them. And uh, you know, they just had a blast too. So it was uh, it meant so much to have them there. I remember in, in our game against Great Britain, you know, they were so loud and so supportive. And if you can just think about hockey hooligans, I mean, they were wearing the Canadian flags, they were wearing hockey helmets. I don't even know if they had hockey sticks, but these guys were so well equipped uh, to represent Canada. And, you know, in a stadium of 15,000 people, you could hear them. Uh, it, was un it was unreal. Yeah, I didn't really know. You couldn't really tell where anybody was, uh, but you knew where they were for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I want to I want to talk about your partnership with Sam a little bit because that there's, there's some really really good insight to that for you as as kind of an elder athlete playing with the younger um, younger athlete and and then once again I want to get more into your mind. Um, can you talk about your your partnership with Sam? What that what that meant to you and you know some of that dynamic. Yeah, so I saw him uh, win world championships for the first time uh, and, and as a blocker. So, and I, I see the way this guy plays. So I pick him up and, you know, at the junior level, usually like the physical technique kind of wins. So when we first started playing with each other, you know, if he started a match hot, he'd be un untouchable. But if he was poorer and he wasn't doing well, he wasn't able to turn it around. And, um, and his, the difference was, you know, we, we talked about like flow state and I read this book, Res Superman from Stephen Kotler talks about the flow state and what you actually do need to like feel overwhelmed um, 
and anxious and nervous. Uh, the difference is you kind of just have to let go and not think because they, you know, they do all these studies where people in the flow and they did studies on like big wave surfers and the guys who were flying around the mountains because it's different in volleyball. If we lose, we go have lunch and everything's fine. No, they lose, they, they could die. So they really need to make sure that they figured out how those guys do it. And they realized the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that's responsible for logic and reasoning was inhibited, totally shut off. So there's no thinking, there's just doing. So I, I tell Sam this now, I didn't realize though, to be honest, I was uh, inhibiting his ability to just do and not think because every time when I started playing with him, I felt he sh I've seen things he doesn't practice when he didn't do it in games. I'm like, hey, what, what's going on here? I, I know, you know, you're a professional. My, you know, my coach is like, we're well, not being supportive. I'm like, well, it shouldn't matter. He's a professional execute. Uh, anyways, long story short, it I wasn't, you know, if he made a mistake, I wasn't, I wasn't unconditionally supporting him. I was only supporting when he did something well. So he was, you know, subconsciously worried about making a mistake, letting me down. And then that made him apprehensive. So when I realized that uh, I started to kind of change my attitude towards him. And the spark was once I kind of started supporting him, even with mistakes, he didn't care about making mistakes. And when he didn't care about making mistakes, then he didn't make mistakes, funny enough. And then uh, he just took off as an insane athlete. So that was fun to uh, try. And he was a great guy too. So it's nice that you can travel with someone we get along with. He's, he's one of those supremely gifted athletes and still to this day i mean it, when when sammy's on and and he gets out of his own way or his partner gets out of his way i mean he's he's one of the best beach players in the world yeah yeah nobody's serving him these days no, they don't touch him because now he's actually even stronger because you know he's playing with peddler who's his, his thing is strength so yeah. now he got that he's got this brains with the strength it's over and so getting into let's just say the 2016 bid and, and campaign um you you guys had won a couple really big medals. You guys had a couple great finishes that all of a sudden put Canada on the map. You know, we hadn't internationally won that type of hardware in a long time. And and you guys had some confidence, right? Moving into that that qualifying season. Can you talk about that tail end of the journey? Maybe allude to Russia and then we can talk about North Bay. Yeah, it was uh it was cool to see because we just kind of were playing with no expectations really as our, uh, as we got together and then we got some momentum going and then we had some confidence and we, we kind of just were rolling and, um, and clicking, but, um, yeah, our, uh, our season kind of, you know, went, ha had its ups and downs, but we, we definitely like were able to like the stuff that you and I took from our partnership, I was able to em uh, employ with, with Sam. So it was, it was huge that you and I went through that because it, it helped us so much. Um, and then, yeah, we were, uh, we started to break, but then the second year with expectations, you know, our, our performance kind of dwindled because maybe we were expecting to do a lot. A lot of teams knew that we could, we could, uh, do well. So we, we actually fell out just of the top 16 and we did have to go that continental route again. And then that was insane too, because to be honest, the other team, Grand Sam saved our spot as the Canadian team much like you and I did for us, uh, for the Canadian team in 2012. So I kind of owe the chance that I have to them because they played so well. Uh, and I remember, I'll never forget this. I never gotten a red card. I don't even think ever. And we're about, we're playing Venezuela. We're down, um, 15, no. Yeah. F anyways, 14, 13. And I'm so tired. They're serving me every ball. It's so hot. And uh, so cheap. I believe it was. And, and I, you know, for those that don't know volleyball, if you get a yellow card, uh, that's not a big deal. There's no points. Red card, there's a point. And then, uh, 
you know, that, and you get another one of those, you get disqualified. So I, in my mind, I'm so tired where I want the referee to give me a yellow card. So it buys more time. So he, I can hear him whistling. I'm cleaning my glasses. He's like, let's go, let's go. And I'm not even looking at him because I'm so tired. And then he, I, it's a different whistle. It's like a long, and then I was like, oh, that's different. Look around, red card in his hand. Now they're up like another one. And then we go back and forth. They end up winning by that, that point. And I couldn't believe that that point was, and he's like, oh, I gave you a yellow card. I was like, I, I don't remember you did, but you know, I couldn't believe that happened in that game of all games, Olympic qualification. I'm like really? So grand Sam, the other team, they ended up playing well. They ended up beating that team and they, and they won it for us. So we ended up playing them just like you and I did for a, a one winner take all match to the Olympics. <laughs> I can't believe that red card. Not only that, I mean, the, the fact that you, you don't remember getting a yellow card is, is hilarious and such a yes. beautiful game. I think about uh, uh, who is um, LeBron James's teammate who just forgot to shoot the ball in that critical moment. Yeah, Jerry Smith. Like, yeah, Jerry Smith, tough bounce there. That's the um, same thing. Yep, totally. He's just, just <laughs> uh, chalk it up to experience there, Benz. Um, yeah, so, so the the qualifier in North Bay, um, can you paint a little bit of a picture about, about that game? And then we can kind of get into the end of that because your level of competitiveness and your mental fortitude, I truly believe won you guys that game. So you guys went up to North Bay to play in that Canada versus Canada match again. Um, how, how did you and Sam prepare for that? And what did that match look like? Well, it's interesting because unlike, you know, you're and I'm our match against the, uh, Ben and Christian, we kind of were back and forth with them. And, you know, we've beaten them, they've beaten us. But with Grant and Sam that match, I think we had beaten them like the last eight times we played them. So it was like tough because we really feel like, oh, we're going to beat them again, even though it's like a huge match. They're probably thinking, well, we got nothing to lose. We might as well go out, take risks, take all, you know, take these, uh, play a high level because we don't really have anything to lose, so to speak. So that was interesting and tough and they were actually playing well because they won the berth so that was a that was a bad recipe for us because uh they had nothing to lose and they were playing confidence so um they end up smoking us the first set we kind of make adjustments in the second and then uh you know they made adjustments the third next thing you know i find myself down it goes like 12 9 or 13 8 in the third and, uh, I, and i'm looking through the net and i see again my friends and family there and I, I cannot believe how close I am to losing this this game and the Olympic berth. And I'm just like, no, you know, again, like losing is not an option. This is not how it's going to go down like this. I'll never hear the end of it or feel it. No, I can't do this. So call a timeout. And after that was the moment where everything changed. And I remember the entire beach volleyball community at that point in time, if you weren't up there watching, then you were watching on whatever device you had. You, if you, people were driving and watching that on their cell phones, people were international. I think the entire beach volleyball community as a whole, like FIVB, everyone was watching and paying attention just because there was so much on the line there. And, and both you guys were world-class teams playing for that spot. So the entire international culture was aware of this. And that timeout changed everything. It, it yeah. really did. And so the next few points, um, you know, can you, can you walk us through the rest of that game? Because it, it was such a huge testament to your ability to wait things out, not lose confidence, and, and also just show up when you have to. 
Yeah, it was, uh, well, also, you know, I'll never forget too. I mean, Pedlo blocked me and he gives a little finger waggle, like, no, 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 no. I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. I'm Don't now, put the bear. Yeah, you know, I was like, not that I needed that, but it was just a little extra. So that's when I call timeout. And uh, I also think that was the moment where they realized they had something to lose. Until then, they had nothing to lose, really. And out of that moment, they realized. I've been there, uh, you know, against the other teams that I thought I shouldn't have beaten. And, you know, it's the fear, fear of success, which is the odd one, right? Everybody knows about fear of failure, but the fear of success. And, yeah, they, uh, once they realized they had something to lose and they got tentative and they played tight and they weren't as aggressive and they weren't, they were, they weren't um, as free-flowing and risk-taking. And, uh, and then we felt the momentum when we went for the jugular and ended up, uh, I don't know how many points in a row we got, but we were just, uh, yeah, we ended up coming back to win that. So that was massive. It was, it was huge. And that, it's such a great point. The, the whole, you know, playing, playing not to lose changes the game. It takes you <clears> out of flow. You all of a sudden you start thinking about things. You start making decisions. You start being more tentative because you realize how close you are. And I'll pull it back to the 2012 qualification game for us. And I kept on thinking, holy shit, we're going to win. And then I would force myself to, I, I remember picturing pushing that thought away. Because you can't, you can't think about what happens after the next point. If you're living in the future, you're not in the moment. And then all of a sudden you, you kind of lose control. So a, a huge learning lesson, I'm sure for, for Sam and Grant that, that has allowed them to flourish as athletes, but you guys wound up taking that game and you got the ticket to Rio, which was amazing. So what did yeah. playing in the Rio games mean for you? Well, that was a little different because, you know, I mean, London was unbelievable, but Rio beach volleyball of all countries in the world, it's like, you know, that's their Mecca other than soccer. That's their biggest sport. So what are the chances of getting to go to the Olympics at a country where they're, the crowd is so knowledgeable um, and so rowdy and, and we ended up playing Brazil again, the host country, the first, uh, first match and I knew they're going to come at me and serve me because they had beaten us I think the last two or three times and I was just visualizing I was like I'm just going to shock the world and I knew it and we almost did if you watch this match we were just there I think we lost like 21-19 on a on a call the first set I should have actually challenged they were out it kills me that to this day I didn't challenge it and then we were right there in the second two. And it's funny, they didn't serve Sam one ball until the end. Uh, I think it was like 23, 22, and they served him a ball. And he kind of just shanked it for the match. But, I mean, it's tough to all of a sudden go from not touching the ball to passing a dime on that one. So uh, that was that was it. And then they go on and win the damn gold medal. So, I mean, what are you going to do? But uh, <laughs> but it, it was pretty special being able to play them um, at the first match of the, their home Olympics. Now, the... The stadium in London was such an incredible experience. What what was the stadium like in Rio? Uh, well, it was interesting because it was on the beach versus London was all made. They shipped the sand in. They they created the stadium. Whereas we were playing on the beach, which is rare because, as you know, you know when we play beach volleyball, we're rarely on the actual natural beach. Um, so the fact that it was on. Uh, Copacabana, uh, the legendary beach. I mean, where maybe where it all started, that in Manhattan Beach, the top two famous uh, legendary beaches, uh, was just so nostalgic and special because of, of the, um, you know, history of that beach and the, and the quality that's gone down there. So to be able to play on that, on that sand for the Olympics was you know, probably as best as you can ask for. Absolutely, and a big tip of the hat to the 
to the majors, I mean, they, they had turned beach volleyball into modern entertainment. And so the, the brand of beach volleyball was a little bit different by, let's say, 2014, 2015, 2016, as a result of the majors really redefining what beach volleyball entertainment was. How did, how did it differ from, a, let's say, a show or a vibe perspective from 2012 to 2016? It was, um, it, I think it was the, the biggest, um, well, you know, London was as well, like the biggest ticket to get, you know, they, they had the most uh, marketing for it. They, you know, you, apparently you couldn't get tickets um, and, and it was just, you know, they had the people that were coming there that didn't know beach volleyball were still showing up just because of the vibe and the party scene and the music and whatnot. So it was definitely the, uh, the venue to, to see of all. Amazing. Okay. So let's, let's transition out of it. We, we got a ton of history there. I, I apologize to the listeners. We probably could have gone on for five hours about different stories and partners and things, but the real reason why I have you on the show, Josh, beyond you being my partner for the 2012 games is you are an incredible mental athlete. Like I don't know another athlete that can show up the way you do from a mental perspective, um, having battled against you, having battled with you. You're tough as freaking nails, man. And I want to understand a little bit more about what that looks like. So right off the top, like, why are you a winner? Because you've won in many different instances where it could have been even right across the board, but you win more times than you lose. Why is that? Hmm. Um, well, I can't really say for sure, but um, <laughs> I, I think it's just the, the, the constant grind and battle you've seen in sports so many times like teams are about to win they lose it at the end or vice versa so uh, because I would never really grew up with the, I wasn't the strongest the best technique so I just only had my fight so to speak and my grit and then you realize you know when you get to that higher level that's really the difference are you able to stay optimistic um, when you know when you're down and are you able to you know shut off your thinking and go with your intuition because that's operating a higher level or, you know, are you able to adjust mid game and, and take a risk, um, you know, when you shouldn't, I think it's really kind of all the, the, the resilience really, I think it comes down to it. It's adversity and building, um, building resilience to that adversity. Now, is, is there a framework behind that for you? Like over the years, have you picked up certain skills, be it affirmations, being it, you know, how you approach the game from a mental side, but you know, what would be your mental framework of, of how you approach playing the sport? I guess I would say it's, it was just the never kind of say die attitude in terms of being a part of it from, from watching it and then being a part of it from that indoor volleyball in that my first year at U of T and just not believing that we were going to win this. And then we ended up doing it and I've seen it both ways. I've been on the other end too. So I, and I've, it sounds so cliche. You're like, Oh, we're going to win. This is going to be good. You know, you obviously can't just say it. You really have to feel it. Um, but the fact that, um, you know, I, I've seen that and been a part of it and I've seen it to other people as well. Um, if you really can just buy into that, um, in the end, of course, that's not going to be the, always the case. Of course you lose, but, uh, it seems like percentage wise that that ends up being uh, the case. So from my side, you know, I, I built my game around the physicality, but if someone, or if I beat myself physically, like I didn't have a second gear. So if, if I wound up somehow losing confidence in my physicality, um, 
I would say that I would crumble fairly quickly because there's been times where, you know, like my heart rate got the best of me, you know, that one time in Austria, I completely lost track of that. Uh, there's other mm-hmm. times where it was so hot where I just all of a sudden folded and I, I couldn't hack it, you know, for yourself building your game off of your mental side, you know, how do you build a game or how do you build a strategy understanding that, you know, you're using your mind versus your physicality to, to win. Yeah, I guess it's being um, as, as many tools in the shed are being as well-rounded as possible uh, because there's, there's so many different ways, especially with beach, which is so cool because there's not one way to do something. And there's so many, mm-hmm. the intangibles, like you can really get a sense. Are you breaking somebody down? Like, you know, I'm tired, but then you realize like you see a chink in their armor and then that subconsciously gives you uh, some energy and can you, you know, you feel the momentum of, of the game or you losing, do you slow it down or are you winning? Do you keep it going? And all, I mean, it's really the intangible things, the game within the game, so to speak, um, is what I, I found is, is responsible for that. Yeah. And, you know, I want to build a game with you right now because it's just so interesting because what people may not know, and if you haven't, let's just say seen our matches on, um, on YouTube, or you haven't had the opportunity to play with you or, or, or see you, Josh, like how you play defense is one of the best examples I've seen in the world. And I, I'll give you props to that, man, your, your defensive strategy, your defensive style and how you break down the game and how you're able to play points in a way that you build a story. How do you approach building a story, understanding you're playing playing defense to win? Yeah, that's uh, you know it's funny. I was I was watching different players coming through and and how they approach it, and they really I used to get so rattled when people scored on me, and and then watching them, they it's not I mean of course they care, but they don't get emotional about it. They stay objective. And they just process that information and they say, okay, well, this guy scored on this shot. This guy. Because then like Ricardo or the blocker, I remember barely even got a block until the end because he just put all that information is at the end. Um, and, you know, I would just talk to people because I, I, I'm big. I mean, I know a lot of coaches don't have to be the best players, but for me, like it was just, I didn't want to focus on the direct experience of those who've been like been there versus those I call them like armchair generals, you know, like those are people <laughs> that are, you know, kind of studying the people, right? Like yeah. um, who are talking about it because that's, you know, the final path to excellence about, you know, you got to cross that thin ice where you have to be willing to go up against an enormous misstep on that ice, so to speak. Like if you're not, if you've never been in that situation, you don't know what it's like to take the risk in that situation. You know, you kind of just have to improvise and trust your intuition. Uh, like in the, like I saying before, when, when your logic and reasoning is telling you something else and that's the, I found was the hardest part. Um, and you really just have to be willing to like, you know, go up to the brink of disaster to succeed in pressure filled moments. And that's sounds easy. And I've, I've been in the situation where I was not willing to do that. Um, and that's what I found to be the biggest difference. Um, so to be able to really listen, like truly, like, and internally to like the core of your being, um, and build your strategy from there. Like it's just trusting your gut, um, you know, and build a lifestyle, not only on the court, but also, you know, around listening to that. Uh, cause it's not easy to do, like, you know, many people are scared to like let go of their rationale and their reasoning under times of intense pressure and, you know, and let their tu- intuition take over. They're scared. But, uh, but those are the people that really, you know, get into flow, like I was saying before and perform optimally. And it's, it's really fun to think about 
building a game because you have one, you know, a line you got, you got to cross. Then you, mm. you know, for those teams that do the dive cross, so let's just call it an X. And and then you have mm. kind of an, an X where you come back into the line. Mm. Let's just say you have four and, and we can allude to the, what would be a fifth that I think you, you really created for our team that was very successful, but building that out, you kind of have four options, but understanding those four options, there's, there's so much nuance to it. Can you talk about how you will build a storyline where you're taking in those data points and you're seeing how people react and how you, you start to employ that and essentially challenge somebody on their decision-making skills under pressure later on in the game? Yeah, you, you got to see what people can get away with, what they're willing to risk what they're not, uh, what they're feeling comfortable with. And then, yeah, once you've kind of got that information, uh, you develop plays at the end to bait them into hitting those shots that they want. Because obviously you can lose it and win, but if you're going to lose, you have to make sure that they hit the shot that you know they're very uncomfortable with. And more often than not, they won't do that. So um, that's kind of the, uh, the lesson that I've learned being able to you know, just the beginning, just feeling each other out. It's kind of like, you know, MMA or boxing, everybody, you just feel their reach out first. Nobody really gets crazy. And then uh, it's, it's the ones that come out the gate going crazy are the ones usually that, that don't come out on top. So that's, that's kind of what I use for, uh, for my game plan. And it's, you can kind of see it and we're playing in kind of the metaphysical side of things, but you're, you're overreaching on your insecurity. You're trying to protect your insecurities by coming out harder. And I right. certainly, you know, played into that, trying to be fierce, trying to be loud. But, you know, once you, you make it through, let's say that first side switch and this, I know we're talking about volleyball here, but any athlete can use this within their sport because you're feeling each other out. And this is something that, you know, looking at maybe provincial or national volleyball. Now I, I get less of the feeling situation and I get more of just trying to hit the ball harder. I need to be stronger. So I, I feel like we're kind of moving a little bit away domestically from the mind style of this game. But what I want to take that and, and bring or paint a story of is, is really the big two play that we had, which I love because you were challenging that person to think about and make a decision because you were giving them something so juicy and, and now you're messing with their mind. And I, I love thinking about how defense really is actually offense because you're the you're dictating what's going to happen. And, and them as an offense, they're now reacting to you because you're making the call. So really, at the end of the day, the defense has more impact than they think. And so we set up this big two where I as a blocker would just be big and I would just project that I was going to be in the cross court area, I'd be big, I'd be early, and I would take away that big juicy cross court. And then you would plant yourself on top of the line as a defender and just look at them. How did you turn that play into something that we wound up getting a lot of great points in at, at the highest level of a game when if you're just standing in a tiny alleyway in the court and projecting yeah. that, you know, the odds are that you aren't going to win the point, but we got so many off of that. Why was that, Josh? Yeah, it's funny. I actually bring that up. I, I sent uh, the the game we beat Latvia pretty much running that play to the guy that I'm going to be playing with this weekend. And I was like, hey, I want to tell you something. This, this stuff's with gold. And we practiced it today. And we literally was like five for five. He's never seen anything like it before. <laughs> it was hilarious. And um, yeah, we did like, you know, uh, back to my style of game because I'm not going to be able to overpower and I have to find ways to be successful. So that's just a different look. Same concept as our other plays, but a different look. 
And um, it just, yeah, it makes people, uh, it, it changes their rhythm, which is, you know, even if you pass a sky ball perfectly, it throws you out of rhythm. If you, you know, take a serve, a short serve from one area of the court, it's something different and, um, and something that they're not used to. So, and we do it late in the game where by the time they do get used to it, it's, it's too late. It's over. So when you're standing on top of the line, and, th- and I want to paint a really clear picture so that the culture that is beach volleyball in Canada or globally can can make use of this because it it's really amazing and, and I think you've mastered it. When you're standing on the line, what are the options that they have or what are, what are you trying to set up and understand? What are some of the data points that you're looking at to bring this play to life? Well, the only shot that they have out that will get them to score in this play is a roll over the block into the angle. But it's a very risky shot because if I do release, it's an easy dig. So uh, they, they shouldn't have a hit line because I should dig. It shouldn't have a hit cross because the blocker should get it. It shouldn't have a cutty because the blocker's so far over that they should swat it. So I just want to see, you know, yeah, what, are they able to take the risk and, and go with what they feel? Or are they just going to stay robotic and, and not trust their intuition? And once I can see what type of player they are, then I develop that play uh, at the end of the game to, uh, to exploit that. I love that. And you're really forcing that person to get out of flow, right? You're forcing them to make a decision and commit to something before the moment is right to make a decision. And that's really, you know, what sport is, is the more that you can not necessarily make a decision, allow your body and your mind and what you see and having your awareness, allow that the right play to happen. The more you're able to get out of your way, the better, but that play stands in the face of that because you're like, is this guy for real? Is he mm. standing on the line and give me the juiciest thing of all time? Yeah. No, I don't, I don't believe it. And then you just yeah. put a dinky little poke or a, just a roll yeah. shot right into your lap. And from that moment, there's some space to play with. So what, you know, what, what's the next step there that you like to take? And, and then we'll move on from this. But I just love it because this is, <laughs> this is the best version of the mind game that I can come up with from a beach volleyball perspective that, you know, I, I don't see enough of right now from, from my side. So once you've kind of gone inside of their head, you know, how do you play with it? Yeah, back to what you're saying. I don't see anybody running this. I do see Taylor Crabb from the States and Nick Lucena. Those are the only two guys I really have seen uh, do this, but nobody in Canada for sure. Um, yeah, so once I see if they do have that rollover, then you have the reverse, of, or if they have this massive, huge line crush, then the reverse of that play is the blocker dives back into the line and then defender releases to the angle. Um, so once I know what they like to do when they're, cause it looks the same initially to them. It's not until they're about to hit, do they, does the defender either stay or leave? So once I know what uh, they, they like to do or what their out is, I'll save that till the end. Um, and then run that play based on what I, what I got from what they're showing me. Love it. Well, let's move that into culture and, and building athletes. Cause I know you're super passionate about giving back. You've done a whole bunch of camps. You travel a lot to share in other clubs and organizations, which huge tips that I had to you to stay in the game and, and to stay, you know, really helping in, in an elder who's just guiding as much as you possibly can. You know, understanding where we're at within beach volleyball, um, you know, what's on your heart for, for, let's say, culture and building an athlete? What do you think is missing right now? And, and how would you potentially go about approaching that? Ooh, yeah, good question. That's uh, that's something I would love to do uh, right now. Obviously, logistically with the new business, no chance. But by one day, I would love that because I do see it lacking. And 
I mean, a couple of things. One, hey, there, there's not enough. There's not enough like savagery. Is that a word on the court? You know. And yes, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know if that's uh, official, but yeah, you know, <clears throat> there's a. Re- I mean, the people in Canada, I love them, but the ones that are training here aren't doing anything on the world tour. It's the ones that are 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 training in the environment with savages because you can't. And that doesn't mean that you can't be friends off the court, but on the court, I still, there's still the focus really isn't totally there. Uh, the commitment to get better. Uh, maybe they're, maybe they're like, you know, don't want to feel like they're being a jerk to somebody else. But um, if you don't have that and not just accountability, but um, pressure, there's no pressure mimicked in, in training. Um, and people aren't, aren't looking from within to, to why they aren't getting better. Like, you know, it's, it's all about this vulnerability. It's like, they're, like you said before, it's the ego they're trying to hold up. But the irony is like some people, a lot of them don't want to show their vulnerability and, you know, they just want to be seen as perfect and, and tough and strong. But, you know, really the truth of what makes the strongest people in the world is their vulnerability, you know, like early until they learn how to be tough. Like, you know, losing is part of that lesson. You're going to lose. So, you know, unfortunately, but for everybody, though, being unsuccessful is part of that lesson, uh, just as much as losing. So the key, which I would love to implement into the culture, is as long as they embrace losing or, or failure and don't make excuses for it, like that's the key. And, and you know, and then then they can look at what they did wrong and take it in. Because the second you make an excuse, the second you say oh, well, I was a little here, off here, I was a little off there because of whatever, you know, wind or any of stuff. You know, it's the second you, and, and it is windy, I'm sure it's hot, I'm sure it's windy, all that, but the second you make that mistake, it's the second you allow, or my guy couldn't sign out, like, you know, they love saying that, right? I was listening to a podcast Jake Gibb was saying, it's so, so true, people coming back into the tent there talking about my guy couldn't sign out, like, even if that's the case, <laughs> you know, you think, he said, like, you think you ever hear Phil Dalhauser saying that about Nick? Nick gets served every ball, and I'm sure he, he couldn't sign out, and they lose. You never hear Phil say that once, but it's like the moment you say, oh, I was a little off here, I was a little off there, is the second you allow your mind to go down that path of, like, oh, it wasn't in my control, you know, which means you're, you're really, you're not dealing with the problems at hand and the real issue. You're kind of like bypassing the problems uh, when you do that. And then you can't grow from the experience. So it's like, what's the point of losing if you're not going to grow from it and get the most of it? Now it's just kind of like useless. So that's, that's the biggest thing I would implement. The culture. Man, I, I, I love it. And it, I just want to say, if you're listening to this and what Josh just said pisses you off, Mm-hmm. or you think that somehow what, what he said is personal to you, then he's talking to you because yeah. there's an opportunity there. If, if whatever Josh just said resonates with you in a way that you have this ping of it, it pisses you off, there's something to look at there. When we played together, we had this extreme ownership. Our, our team was so willing to own everything and with that comes gratitude. And that's kind of where that accountability and gratitude balance goes. But, you know, if, if we weren't willing to be accountable to our positions or, or our calls or what we had, you know, given as our assignment, then the other person couldn't do their job. So you have to be accountable to your role within the partnership, but also to be okay with losing, but not in a way that you want to lose and it's all soft. It's like, are you willing to fight to the freaking death like a savage and go through that process 
without making up an excuse at some point in time and, and losing with an excuse rather than winning with one. So sorry for that rant on my yeah. side, but if that, if that one hits you, which it may, it may do, there's something there for you. And we've all gone through that. Like I, that, I was doing that, you know, kind of with Maddie, I'd always be like, Oh, I was right there and I had fine, just little things that I could, I could blame it on. So it wasn't really me because I didn't want to look within, you know, so it's, if it does resonate with you uh, and you've gone through that, it's normal. But as long as you learn and, and, and then adjust from that, that's, that's the key. Okay. So it, this is just coming to mind right now. Mm-hmm. And this is happening across the board for, for any athlete, you know, with the onset of let's call it Instagram and, and needing to, to make a public statement after every game. The, the mm-hmm. story that I'm hearing more and more and more and more and more is we had a great game. I lost so many lessons learned. Thanks for your support. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. it's kind of like the token thing to say. Now I'm not saying Instagram is like where you come out with all your deep, deep things, but you know, Understanding that, like, what's your thought process around, let's just say, making that statement? Do you have something better? Do you, do you have a, I don't even want to call it advice. Do you have perspective to share around that statement in particular? Because I see it so much right now. Yeah, it's easy to say. It's easy to say for sure because, you know, if you, if you, either you're winning or you're learning, right? That's what everybody says always. Um, but are they really? right? Like, are they doing that? Are they, it's okay to lose, but if you lose the same way and you don't, uh, you're not honest with yourself, then you'll be saying that statement over and over again because everybody's going to lose, but you shouldn't lose the same way over and over. So yeah, it's easy to say that, but who, you know, unless you're within the little cocoon there, it's keeping up, but you gotta be, you have to be open and vulnerable and it's tough to do that around people that you don't know well, or you don't feel trust, trust around if if you were a coach in someone's circle and your athlete had put that out to the world and, and probably hadn't done the, the work, what would be a question or a way that you could challenge them in a positive way to move past that, Josh? Mm-hmm. I would say, I would say rhetorically, cause I wouldn't, I would be like, listen, do you, do you really believe that? Like look yourself in the mirror and, and tell yourself that um, just you, you know, I think you don't have to tell me because I think, you know, I have my opinion and we can talk about it, but just be honest with yourself. Uh, and cause that's, that's what it took for me to kind of, you know, go past that hump, so to speak. It's just tough. And you really don't want to be around the, anybody around when you kind of, you know, peel your, your layers back and you, you become super vulnerable on the inside. But yeah, I would just ask them to ask themselves that and look in the mirror and be honest with themselves. I love it. The talking with uh, Vince Luciani of Legacy Coaching yesterday, and the answer is in the mirror, not in the window. And that's oh, just, you say that. yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. And you know what? This is a perfect segue to kind of conclude our, our conversation for for this round. Anyways, worthy of a second one. Um, you know, what's the highest value that you live through? And and I've had the spoiler alert because we've done this conversation once before, but I know it's coming, and it really pertains to the answer that you just gave to that hypothetical situation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I got a couple, but yeah, I mean, I, I would say for sure vulnerability going back to that is, is probably for myself because um, I've just, you know, the authenticity, genuinity, genuineness, like some people obviously don't want to show their vulnerability, like I said, and they, um, it, it's just when people see that, um, they, they connect with you more on the court and off the court because 
you know, they show it shows your strength for being open and honest. So who you really are, because everybody's insecure. That's the thing. Nobody wants to show their insecurities. The thing is, everybody is insecure about something. So the moment you are aware of that number one and you, you own it and you share that with someone, then they feel a little bit more open and, and honest around you because then they're not going to appear perfect or always winning because you don't always win. Um, and that's just how you connect on a, a deeper level with people I feel because you know nobody is perfect and wins all the time but um, that's kind of what I was uh, I would say my highest value but uh, another you know something now thinking about now to talk about is and a lot of the old way like just talking about the power of thought and intention like you know the if I was to bring in culture into to the the current situation it just I would tell an athlete to get clear on what they want or a person it doesn't have to be an athlete but you know get clear on what they want but associate like emotions and feeling with that thought so you talked about like positive affirmations and it's not just saying oh I will be the best I am smart like you really have to associate emotion with that uh, because you know the the epigenetic model of reality so to speak shows you like you can literally change your physiology and gene expression through thought alone like before back in the day they're like oh visualization and and all this is airy fairy that doesn't really do anything but I mean it did do stuff we just didn't have research for it and now there actually is research showing um, that thought alone can change the neuroplasticity of your brain uh, so there's like literally physical evidence now to look at the experience like like the experience has already occurred and then the experience will find you because most people define themselves, you know, from like a memory of the past or experiences they've had, you know, not a vision of the future because when you do that, you know, now you're stepping into like the unknown because the future is unknown and we've been conditioned as humans to like think the unknown is like scary, but, but that's the place, like the place of unfamiliarity is where all that change and manifestation comes from. So it's like, you know, we should aim to be comfortable with the uncomfortable, to be honest, and the unknown, because like, you know, our brains reflect everything we know in our life. And like, you know, it really is a record of the past and emotions and product of past experiences. So, you know, if like thoughts, you know, are the language of the brain and feelings are the language of the body, then like how you think and feel creates like your state of being. Like most people, like neurologically, biologically, chemically, you know, they're all connected to the past. But the big question is like, can you believe in a future that you can't experience with your senses yet, but you've thought about it enough where your brain is actually changed to look like the experience has already occurred. And like I said before, neuroscience and research shown us that it is possible. If we emotionally like embrace it, then our, you know, our unconscious mind believes it's, it's living in that new reality, but in the present. So, um, and then you're not waiting for your success, you know, you, or it's, it's going to, you know, that's the old model. It's the quantum model, so to speak, is the energy is you have to teach your body how you're going to feel once you achieve whatever it is you want and you have to feel it before it happens. So, you, you know, you define reality with your senses and you don't wait for something outside to change how you feel inside. Damn, that was good. Yes. <laughs> so that, that was beautiful, Josh, man. So, so good there and transitioning into even the, the beliefs or the goals that you have, you know, you don't rise to the level of your goals. So leaving beliefs out of mm. it, you sink or fall to the level of your systems, meaning that, you know, the things that you have established in your life, you know, do you have some systems in your life that you use to, to uphold your game? Well, I am uh, working on the, the kind of the planning and the organization. I think the, the, I've been able to kind of get through with, 
when the pressure's on and executing, which is great, but you know, uh, it's not, not the, uh, the most sustainable or healthiest way, kind of way to go. But, um, you know, I really feel that the, like I said before, kind of the intangibles, uh, of feeling momentum and just going with the flow and feeling with your gut, uh, which is tough compared to, you know, your logic. Um, so I find that that's kind of my, uh, you know, some non-negotiable, so to speak, or my system. The irony is that my system is kind of not always being super organized and, and, and going with the plan and the game plan. It's kind of going with my gut and just trusting my intuition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. I want to chat a little bit about like the game within the game, which you've clearly, clearly described. But, you know, how are you transitioning your love for performance into what you're up to right now? For, for those who don't know, you recently opened up ethos and and your chiropractor there and i just would love to hear a little bit about how you're transitioning all of this passion for for sport and athletic and human performance in into your current model yeah i'm just uh applying what i have learned into the business i mean they don't really teach you business in school i think they do now but back then they didn't so they teach you to be a great practitioner so i'm just kind of applying you know, things as I learn, I feel like I'm kind of, you know, back in the qualifier stages and every game is a new learning lesson. So I'm applying this and I, I haven't lo- lost the same way twice. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a learning experience, but what's, what's helping me stay optimistic in this growing moment because it's, you know, it's uh, starting a business. It's a whole new level of kind of, uh, you know, stress and work and it's kind of like you know beach volleyball starting on the, on the grind when you you know you're on the tour and you don't have a lot of money and you need to qualify so you can stay uh, you know get all the hotel and the food and whatnot it's um it's kind of the same mindset where um i know it'll come it's just as i as i go through and and implement my strengths um it, it organically grow um which it is so we just kind of you know we're just portraying our whole philosophy is you know the, the recovery is the missing pillar a lot of clinics so to speak have multidisciplinary clinics and fitness facilities which they do but um the recovery aspect even if you aren't an athlete you know if you're a businessman or woman or a housewife or whatever and you you know work all day and you got to come out with them feed the kids and make dinner, you know, you still got to come and get recovered and, and rejuvenated. So our, uh, our recovery pillar, um, and for athletes as well, because we realized since we were all athletes ourselves, we realized the best way we could avoid injury and not only avoid injury, but maximize our performance was, uh, maximize our recovery so we can continue sustainable output. So that's kind of what, what, uh, what we're focused on now. And it, it seems to be uh, going fairly well. That's amazing, man. And whereabouts are you guys? You're presently, is it North Toronto yep. that you guys uh, are just opened up your facility? Correct. Yeah, it's North Toronto. So it's like uh, Leslie and York Mill, specifically right by like DVP and 401 where those two highways uh, intersect. That's where we're Amazing. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you're listening and you're in Toronto, go check Josh out. Uh, amazing, amazing spot. And you know, incredible opportunity to, to learn from you in person. You're, you're a hell of a practitioner too. You, we, we treated each other yeah. <laughs> on, on, on the road. You taught me how to treat you, which was super fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I find and, usually the best practitioners are athletes because they just know that the touch and they know their body. So yeah, it was great. <laughs> I remember being, being in the airport and giving each other deep, deep tissue massages and people are walking by going like, what? yeah, exactly. Just getting some recovery on the road. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. What we got to do. Okay. So, so last two questions here. One is, you know, above all, you know, the athlete who knows why will beat the athlete who knows how. What's your why? 
Ooh, that's a goodie. Uh, especially because I just downloaded the What's Your Why book. I don't know if you've read that. Um, but Is that Simon Sinek? Yes, it is. Simon? Yeah. Sinek. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. I've, uh, I've heard a lot of good things about that. But, but before I read that, uh, my why, well, it's changed, I guess. You know, my, my why initially, I, I must say, was a little bit more of a selfish reason. I just kind of wanted to, you know, see... Um, you know, the ego, I think it was initially uh, of how good can I be and I want to do this. And, and then I realized, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not so much as this volleyball, my why, but it's, it's, it's being an overall good person uh, because, you know, it's, it's, it brings people together like it did with, you know, my family um, and friends and um, they give you reason, you, you inspiring the youth and, you know, how many people you really can connect to. So it, my why became from myself to more of a greater reason to, you know, to bring people together and then take the lessons I've learned from beach and apply it to life because that sport is so unique in that way. Like any other mm -hmm. sport, it's, it's insane. Um, you know, and it has a hybrid of it's like a solo sport, but a team sport, like no other sport has, has that hybrid. Um, but, um, but, you know, you can see, you can see those. And people say that to me too about, you know, what you've done and how you're inspiring and you don't realize that because you're just in your own little tunnel focusing. Um, so once I hear messages like that and hear that from parents and kids that kind of, you know, it switches my, my why to the greater reason. Love it, man. And you know, the, the whole goal here with the, the off ball project is really an opportunity to create some fireside conversations where we as elders who have gone through these experiences can share knowledge and wisdom and, and really try to impart as much um, into the, the next gen who's willing to tackle the things that um, you know that, that we've we've tried to tackle and ideally they do a better job than us yeah. uh, by learning through us so you know if there was one one lesson or one story or, or one opportunity that you'd like to share with them what would that be oh that's a good one um, yeah I, I guess I got to go back to the resilience because I feel like that's what like you asked me, made me so successful. And, you know, cause I used to get so rattled when negative things happened to me uh, you know, in my life on the court, off the court. And you realize everybody has to deal with that. So it's really about, you know, you really can choose your attitude, like, you know, 10% or whatever a percentage is what happens to you, but 90%, like most of the percentage is how you react. And it's tough not to get emotionally emotional initially. Um, but you know, how, how do you stay objective and what the next course of action is mindset, like moving forward at all times, even when it doesn't look good, you know, I find in our kind of Western culture, you know, we teach kids to like you know, avoid failure and, and focus on the outcome, you know, versus like seeing failure as like, like really a temporary setback that actually are opportunities, like we said, to learn and grow, uh, you mm -hmm. know, and the way you do that is I, you got to find a working relationship with fear of failure, uh, because world-class performers still have fear. It's not like they don't fear losing, but they, they have a relationship with it. You know, you speak to any world-class performer, they'll tell you that they still feel fear, but they just know how to channel it and work with it. Uh, you know, and this idea of fearlessness, I, I think it's false. I think it's a false idea that's created from the outside or a spectator or something. Like, you know, we, we uh, our world-class performers, us as athletes, like we, we harness fear, nerves, you know, anxiety, but we have a working relationship with them. And then we convert it to like intensity, at least I do. Um, so I think fear of failure is in everyone. Uh, and I think those that deny it are kind of letting their ego speak for them, to be honest. 
Um, so it's, uh, I think once we become, uh, aware of that and, and embrace it, um, that, you know, that will be the, the game changing thought process. I love it. And it's, it's, it's right where, where I'm kind of prying into right now with the breath work and diving into the human animal and, and fear is a natural response to our environment. And if we lose touch with that, we don't know how to turn it and convert it into something that can work for us. You know, we're, we're kind of losing out on the power. So it's not exactly like you said about being fearless. It's about knowing how to use it to your advantage. So mm. love it, man. That's so great. Cool. Well, listen, it's, it's been a long one and, and a great one. I want to go on again with you because uh, there's just so much more. You're such a wise person that, you know, your biohacking understanding and your passion for that and, and even just body human performance. There's so many other places we can go. So maybe another time we'll, we'll hop on. But right now, I just want to honor you, man. For, for what you give to the people that are around you, the youth of the next gen, what you've given to our sport, like two-time Olympian, that's, that's no fluke. Mm. Just way to go, man. We're proud to uh, have been your partner in 2012 and uh, stoked for what the future has in store, bro. Thanks so much, Martin. I appreciate you doing this. And you know, it's like, you, you know, you're telling me and those are kind words, but the reason these, these you know, the next generation is going to hear this stuff is because you are taking the initiative to, to give them this platform. And it's incredible what you're doing with the off ball athlete um, and them learning these lessons from you and the off ball so early, is just going to be so huge for their development um, on and off their playing field. And I'm just so proud of you for uh, putting this together and giving them this opportunity. Cause I wish I had you when I was younger, but um, <laughs> I, I hope they really appreciate and realize, um, you know, the opportunities that you're giving them through off ball. So it's incredible. And, well, I, I I wish I had me at a younger age or even, you know, a greater way of saying that mm -hmm. is, you know, mentorship is so critically important in, in culture. And, um, you know, that's actually a, a great little question to like, did you have a mentor going through? Did you have someone that, that you, you would consider uh, a mentor? I didn't have a mentor. I kind of, um, you know, went through and, and developed mentors throughout on different areas. Um, so I, I can't really say one person cause then I'll probably be missing a bunch. Um, but you know, throughout my life, uh, I had people that kind of believed in me even before I believed in myself and then them believing in me yeah. was kind of like, Whoa, okay, well you see something, I guess I'll keep going. And I was thinking about shutting her down, but if you believe in me, then, then sure. You know? So yeah, I definitely, um, I would suggest for the youth listening to this, definitely get a mentor or mentors. Um, and, and that's done what you've done or that you want what you want to do and, um, yeah, be a sponge, pick their brains. Love it. Okay. Let's end it there. Yep. We can go for forever, yep. but love you, man. Love Thanks you so much for your energy and your insight and, uh, Appreciate that. on to the next. Sure, sir. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you and the time that you put into this. I always do my best to bring you as much value as possible through these conversations. And in return, I'd love it if you were to give this podcast five stars on iTunes or share it with any friend parent, coach, teammate, someone that you love, someone that you think would gain value from listening to this conversation. The goal really is to empower the individual. Yes, this is about performance, but can we all become better human beings before we enter whatever that peak performance is? So thank you once again for listening and we'll talk to you soon.